This is Docs Outside the Box, Episode 6. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box Podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry, you're getting real life insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. Welcome back to another episode of Docs Outside the Box. I am your host, Dr. Nee Darko. And check it. I just got back from Atlanta, Georgia. And if you've been following me either through Facebook or through Twitter, you know that I attended the Traffic Sales and Profit Live conference. And it was an opportunity to get some self-development, to invest in myself. I got a chance to meet and network with entrepreneurs who definitely have a completely different mindset than us physicians. And let's just say I was out of my comfort zone But all in all, I think the things that I learned from this conference are going to take the podcast to another level. We're going to continue to get you great guests, but I think overall, the overall production and um, the overall outlook of the podcast is going to get better. But back to the show. On this show today, we have uh, Dr. Jim Dolly on the show. You may not know him by his name. You may know him by his other name, which is The White Coat Investor. So here on Docs Outside the Box, as you know, stories are told. And the key to this story that we're going to talk about is actually self-empowerment. Like many of you listening, um, Dr. Jim Dolly, the white coat investor, he had a bad experience with a financial advisor. And unknowingly, he bought products that he would later uh, regret. And I'm sure that sounds very familiar. That's actually how I found found out about his website. But Dr. Dolly... He didn't get discouraged by that experience. As a matter of fact, he actually had the opposite reaction. And as a result of all of his research through internet searches, being on online forums, hitting up the library, going through multiple books, he acquired enough knowledge and realized that all of this financial stuff that we think we don't know about or think that we need to pay someone else to um, take care of, the concepts to that is actually not much different than what we're learning. And as a matter of fact, as he says, it's actually a lot simpler than what we practice on a daily basis. And with that, he started the White Coat Investor, which has become the most comprehensive website for physicians and other medical professionals. So on this episode, the things that I want you to pick up on this episode are, one, how does he balance his medical practice with running the White Coat Investor? Top three financial mistakes made by doctors. You don't want to miss this one. And what is the push? Why is there such a push from financial advisors about cash value life insurance? He's going to describe cash value life insurance and give us some pros for why we may need cash value life insurance and also some negatives as to why we don't need cash value life insurance. And then also at the same time, we're going to discuss a scenario where we discuss a newly minted attending who's recently graduated has $250,000 of debt. What are some of the core financial tips that someone graduating or who's just graduated from residency and with debt, what are the core financial tips, things they should be doing uh, to make sure that they don't make the uh, wrong mistakes? So this is one that you're not going to want to miss. And let's get on with the interview. Okay, everyone. 
Back at it again with another episode of Docs Outside the Box. I have been excited, anticipating this interview for quite some time. We have Dr. James Dolly, website editor, creator of the White Coat Investor, who has basically been running a, this website since 2011, giving those who wear a white coat a fair shake on Wall Street. So before we get into the nitty gritty, Dr. Dolly, thank you very much for coming onto the show. But would you take a moment just to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm probably uh, best known as, as the author of The White Coat Investor, a doctor's uh, guide to personal finance and investing, as well as the founder of The White Coat Investor. Um, but that was all kind of later in my life. Uh, I grew up in Alaska and then went away to Brigham Young University, where I did my undergraduate work in molecular biology, then did medical school at the University of Utah and uh, did my emergency medicine training at the University of Arizona. I then spent four years in the military, actually practiced medicine on four different continents before getting out and relocating to Utah. And I practice in a small democratic group here. Um, I'm still working full-time in emergency medicine, and the whole website author thing is all on the side for me. So you truly are, uh, <laughs> you basically are multifaceted. You have your hands in multiple things. Um, how did you get your knowledge base in finance? Well, that is an interesting story because I basically didn't have a knowledge base. I certainly didn't have any interest in business or finance as an undergraduate or even really as a medical student. It wasn't until I started getting my first paychecks as a resident that it became much more interesting to me. And so late in my intern year, we actually went on, on the recommendation of another resident, hired a, a financial advisor and went in and met with them and he got us set up in some Roth IRAs and we bought some uh, life insurance and we bought some disability insurance. And a few months later, I was on a vacation and we were uh, driving through a town and I went into a bookstore and bought a book called Mutual Funds for Dummies because I knew I had some mutual funds in those Roth IRAs. And this book by Eric Tyson basically set me off on this pathway to learn more and more and more about personal finance and investing. Uh, I lived next door to a used bookstore. And so I'd read just about everything in there. And after reading 20 or 30 books, many of which were terrible, but a few of which were good, I started realizing this stuff isn't that hard. And I spent a lot of time on the web, reading blogs, uh, on internet forums. And after a while, I realized I was spending more time teaching others than I was learning. And I got sick of typing the same thing into the internet over and over again. And so I decided, well, I'll start a, a blog and then I can just post a link to the blog every time I see the same question over and over again. And that's actually how the White Coat Investor got started. I had talked to a couple of uh, other bloggers and I decided to make it as a, you know, a side gig, an actual business from day one. I've had ads up on it since the first week and actually tried to make some money with it. And it was basically a labor of love for a couple of years. Um, but since then, it's actually uh, made quite a decent income to me. So now I feel like I can't set it down. It's become too successful. Absolutely. You know, and that's how I, I kind of, you know, label this podcast right now. It's a labor of love. It's something that I enjoy doing. And just like you, I have a full practice also. Um, so obviously you are an emergency, uh, emergency medicine physician. Um, and then you also, at the same time, you do this on the side, uh, about how many, <clears throat> how many hours a week, how many hours a, a day do you, uh, put towards this, um, the white coat investor? Well, it really varies. Uh, I've gotten that question a lot over the years. And for the first few years, I was kind of embarrassed to admit how many it was. 
um, because I didn't want to admit that I had put in that many hours and made so little money doing it. Um, <laughs> but the truth is I probably spend about the same amount of time as I do in my practice. Um, and so as an emergency doc, I worked about 15 or 16 eight-hour shifts a month. And I'll bet that's about how much time I put into website and website-related stuff. Um, so it's about 50-50, I would bet. Um, but, you know, it really varies because some weeks I may put in multiple 12-hour days on it. And other weeks I may not touch it at all other than to approve a few comments and answer a few emails. Um, so I've, I've left it at times for up to 10 days and not even logged into the computer. Um, readers don't typically notice that just because I schedule posts out in advance so far. I mean, I've basically written everything that's going to be published in the next four months already. Hmm. Now, is this may be a hard question, and I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but if you had a chance to do the White Coat Investor 24 hours full time, would you do it? Would you, do you think, do you find more pleasure doing that more so than your practice or do you still enjoy practicing medicine more so that, you know, you would do that more often? Well, here's the deal. I mean, I could walk away from medicine right now. This website's paying me enough that I can certainly support my family on it. Um, And so it's completely an option for me to walk away, but I don't for a couple of reasons. One, I spent a long, long time learning how to be a doc and it was something I really did want to do and something I really do enjoy. And so I I keep doing that. Um, And two, I think I would lose quite a bit of credibility with readers. I mean, the whole point is to show docs how they can go and have a normal practice and still have a great financial life without having to, you know, start another business or go into another profession or be an entrepreneur. Just from their physician income, they can reach financial independence relatively early in life. And so I think I'd lose a lot of credibility if I stopped practicing altogether. That said, these days, I'm starting to look at what's really going to make me happiest and realizing I can't quite put in the time that this business really needs. And so I'm cutting back a little bit. By the end of the summer, I should be down to three quarters time. Uh, But after five years of of doing the White Coat Investor while working full time, I, I think that's probably a reasonable thing to do. The truth is, after a few years, I'd planned, even without the white coat investor, to eventually work my way down to three quarters time anyway. So, gotcha, gotcha. But I plan to keep practicing medicine for for years. With everything that you've learned, with all of your research, everything that you've learned with the white coat investor, do you find that what you've learned affects your practice? Oh, I think it affects my practice only in a couple of ways. One, I'm maybe a little more cognizant of asset protection issues. Um, But I've always been cognizant of those ever since residency. Um, But mainly, I just enjoy it more because I know I don't need the money from it. Because I know I can go and, um, you know, basically support my family using the side income. I can now do medicine simply because I enjoy it. So I'm practicing much more on my own terms, I think, than a lot of other doctors are that literally need that paycheck coming in every month. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, let's take a step back. I want to get a little bit more under the surface of the white coat investor. Now, you said that you um, you had a Roth IRA. You had a financial advisor who opened up a Roth IRA for you. You went to the bookstore, learned more about mutual funds. Um, tell me if I'm wrong or not, but one thing that I get from your website is um, you're pushing physicians to take a more independent, a more aggressive approach to understanding their finances, um, and also at the same time, not completely trusting financial professionals who are out there. Um, What did you learn about your financial professional after reading that book? 
Well, I think the main thing I learned reading that book that really tipped me off was the concept of a load or a commission on a mutual fund. Now, can you exp- can you explain that so to our audience, please? A load is what you pay an advisor who is a commissioned advisor or a commissioned salesman of mutual funds. For example, if a mutual fund has a load of 5% and you invest $1,000, he takes $50 and puts it in his pocket and puts $950 into the investment. That's a load. And there's several different types of loads. There are A loads where you pay that up front. There are B loads where you pay it uh, as you sell the investment when you take the money out. And there are C loads where you basically pay it as you go along uh, in the form of a higher expense ratio for the mutual fund. But what I learned in the book is that there are no load mutual funds. And I thought that's what I was investing in because I was paying the financial advisor a fee uh, in order to give me advice. And so I assumed he had put me into no load mutual funds. And after I came home from that trip and looked mine up, I discovered that I was in uh, a C share, which basically pays this ongoing load as it goes along. And that kind of made me mad because I felt like I was already paying him with the fee. And yet here he was taking the commission as well. And so I decided I just better start learning about this stuff myself because that was the, that was the last in a long line of financial professionals that I had felt ripped off by. I mean, from recruiters to realtors to mortgage lenders, um, you name it, I'd been ripped off by you know just about every type of financial professional there was. Did you feel? Did you feel like they're like they're speaking like a different language? Almost. That's how I feel. Well, part of it is I wasn't financially literate, and part of it was I was entirely too trusting. I think doctors, for the most part, assume all other professionals have the same basic kind of code of ethics. I mean, if you call up a GI doc and you ask for a consultation, you know he's going to give you. Uh, you know, his best opinion of what's going to help that patient the most. That's just not true for every profession. They just are not guided by that same code of ethics. It's much more of a, you know, what's going to pay me the most kind of attitude. And I'm not saying every single professional out there is like that, uh, but it, but it's definitely different than medicine. And until you get your uh, skepticism level up to an appropriate level, you're going to continue to be ripped off over and over again, just like I was. So what you described, the type of financial professional that you had, it sounds like almost a mix between a commission-based versus fee-based. So my last or the, the, the second to last uh, interviewee that I had on my show was a fee-only um, financial professional. Can you talk a little bit about the type of uh, the pay structure in which your financial professional got paid? Sure. This guy was fee-based and uh, I didn't know the difference between fee-based and fee-only. I thought I was hiring fee-only. Uh, but just didn't really get the lingo. Uh, Fee-based is when you pay both a fee and a commission. Fee-only is when you pay only a fee. And the benefit of paying only a fee is that you're basically, it's like you're paying an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor. Um, You pay them a fee for their advice. And if you don't like the advice, so you move on to the next one. But they have every incentive in the world to give you good advice. Um, Whereas when you go to a a fee-only advisor, they're partially a commission salesman. And so their bias is to sell you an investment that pays them the most. And so instead of getting the best investments, you get the ones that pay the biggest commissions. And uh, at least that's their bias. You know, it's very hard even for good people to work against that bias. And so I try to avoid it altogether by not taking advice from commission, uh, from commission salesmen, basically. Mm, okay. Now, I've, I've seen um, websites. I've seen advertising for financial advisors, financial professionals who deal specifically with physicians. Um, can you speak on that 
And uh, I know I, I don't want to cast uh, any aspersions on on any one group of people, but are our financial is our financial picture any different than any other financial or any other professionals where it deserves you know a select group of people working just with physicians? Well, first of all, there are a lot of financial advisors that specialize in marketing to physicians rather than actually advising <laughs> physicians. So That's a good point. I think yeah. it's really important to to distinguish between the two. Because um, one issue is, you know, people specialize in doctors because doctors make money. And, uh, you know, a small percentage of, of more money is, is greater than a small percentage of less money. And so that's why people go after doctors. Um, you know, we're basically targeted, unlike most other professions. And you just got to realize you have a big target on your back. Um, that said, there are a few things that are unique about doctors. The late start is unique. Um, there's a little bit more asset protection issues and the doctors are more readily sued for large amounts of money uh, than most professionals. And uh, the other issue is doctors have very, typically start their financial lives with large amounts of debt. And so some of the student loan management stuff can be pretty unique as well. But that said, I would say 95% of personal finance is the same for everybody. And 4% of personal finance is, is the same for everybody in your tax bracket. So someone else with a physician-like earnings level, it's exactly the same. And only 1% is really physician unique. Mm, okay. So what are, so keeping within uh, what finan- uh, the decisions that uh, physicians make, what are the top three mistakes that you think doctors make financially? Uh, mistake number one is they just spend too much. It's the same mistake everybody else in America makes. They assume if they put just a little bit away for retirement, that's going to be adequate. And part of that is because nobody's ever told them or they've never run the numbers themselves. But the truth of the matter is you really have to save 15 or 20% of everything you earn throughout your career in order to have a similar standard of living in retirement. 15 to 20%. 15 to 20%. And a lot of people just don't realize that 5% isn't going to cut it. And so that's, that's mistake number one. They just don't save enough. And the main reason for that, maybe we ought to call this mistake number two, is they grow into their income too quickly. The real key to being wealthy, comfortable, rich, whatever you want to call it as a doctor, is all about the first year out of residency. Managing that jump from an income of 50000 to an income of two hundred or two hundred and fifty or 300000 If you can just manage that jump well, you're going to do just fine the whole rest of your career. No, you're talking about lifestyle creep. Lifestyle creep, it's beyond creep. It's all about explosion, <laughs> right? And literally, somebody's going from spending 50 grand a year to spending 250,000 a year. And it's worse. Sometimes I see people doing it before they're even out of residency. You know, here it is May in their, in their last year of residency, and they've already got a mortgage on a million-dollar home. They've bought two cars on credit. They owe $350,000 in student loans. They don't catch up until they're 60, you know, just getting back to even. Um, and so it's, it's beyond creep. You know, everybody's going to creep a little bit. My lifestyle has certainly creeped up over the last 10 years since I got out of residency. I think a creep is okay, but it's the lifestyle implosion that kills people. And the other thing I think I see doctors make very, very frequently <clears throat> is they fall in with a commissioned uh, salesman as an advisor. And it's typically an insurance agent. And before they're very far out of residency, not only have they bought all the appropriate types of insurance that they should have bought, 
but they bought a bunch of insurance that now they regret buying. Um, usually it's a whole life insurance product or something. Mm, let's talk about that. <laughs> almost, almost every doctor's either, either been sold this or had it proposed to them and it has to decide now whether to get out of it or not. What, what, what is cash value life insurance? Please set the record straight, you know, Break it down so it will forever, ever be broken, please. Well, there are several different types of cash value life insurance. But the basic concept is you meld an insurance product uh, where if you die, it pays your heirs a certain amount of money with an investment product. And uh, depending on the type of investment product is what type of cash value life insurance it is. For example, if you're melding it with mutual funds, that's called a variable life insurance policy. If you meld it with basically a savings account, you call that a whole life insurance policy. But the problem with these policies is they are long-term investments, meaning for them to work out okay at all, you got to hold them the rest of your life. You know, And if you're buying this thing at 30, that's 50 or 60 years. And the problem is the rates of return you get on this investment for something you have to hold for five or six decades just for it to work out okay at all is pretty terrible. Uh, if you actually look at the ones being sold today, they project about 5% returns and they only promise about 2% returns. And that's if you hold it for your entire life. If you're like a lot of people and you decide after five or 10 years that you really don't want this thing, you're probably still underwater because a lot of these don't even break even for 10 or 15 years. And part of that is because of the very high expenses associated with the insurance and part of it is the big fat commission you pay the guy who sold it. For example, the typical commission on a whole life insurance policy is 50 to 110% of the first year's premium. So wait, 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 wait. What? 50 to 110% of the first year's premium. So if your first year's premium is $30,000, um, that's what that guy's pocketing for selling you this policy. So so that your your premium your premium doesn't even go towards building cash value your premium literally the first year for the most part is going towards a commission Absolutely if you if you look at the way these are set up you you aren't even close to getting anywhere near what you put into it that first year you might put in $30,000 and it might be worth 5 at the end of the year and that's pretty typical Now as the years go by the return actually gets better I mean obviously that's terrible in the first that was, that was pretty sobering, what um, you just said. <laughs> but, but typically, you don't break even for 10 years. There's a few ways you can structure it so that you might break even in five years. But even so, when you compare that to other investments like a low-cost stock index mutual fund or investing in real estate, it just pales in comparison, especially for how long you have to commit to it. And so the problem is doctors realize how this works after they've owned it for some time. And, uh, and then the decision of whether to get rid of it or not is unfortunately much more difficult than the decision of whether to buy it in the first place. So for the most part, term life insurance for the majority of people is probably acceptable. Well, I think, I think that's not even saying it strongly enough. Oh, wow. I mean, the basic thing is you don't need life insurance for your entire life. You only need life insurance while you have somebody depending on your income. So until you have dependents, you know, maybe a spouse that isn't working or children, you don't need life insurance at all. You know, maybe a tiny policy so they can bury you, but that's about it. And then you have your working years until you reach financial independence. Maybe that's age 30 to age 60. Well, that period of time, you probably do need life insurance for that short 30-year term. 
And then after that, hopefully you're financially independent. If you died, your spouse or anybody else dependent on you would be living on your portfolio, just like you're planning to live on in retirement. And so again, as you're older, you don't need life insurance again. And so the problem with the whole life insurance policy is you have insurance for your whole life and you have to pay for it. I mean, if you keep that your whole life, it's eventually going to pay out. And so it costs dramatically more than a term life policy from age 30 to age 60, you know, which is basically peanuts in comparison. All right. I'm going to play devil's advocate with you then. So what do you say when someone comes back to you and says, well, my financial advisor says that I can use my cash value policy like a savings account, or I can take money away from it. And it's like borrowing from myself, like what that type of benefit, how, what's your response to that? You know, it's interesting because that is, ex- is exactly what doctors run into. Um, and so I actually wrote a four or five or six part post about all the myths of whole life insurance and the ways it's sold and the ways that salesmen use to try to convince you it's a great idea. The problem is for each of those uses that whole life insurance has, and it has a whole bunch, there are better financial products to meet those needs. For example, if you need life insurance during those years, your peak earning years, term life insurance is a better product. If you need an investment, uh, mutual funds, especially inside retirement accounts, are a better product. If you need to save for college, 529s are a better product. If you need to, uh, if you need loans, for instance, instead of borrowing from your life insurance policy, a lot of times you get a lower rate from the bank or heaven forbid you save up the money yourself. Uh, you know, so for every use for whole life insurance, there is generally a better financial product that will do it. Um, but the problem is because there are so many different uses of whole life insurance, a salesman will bounce from one to the other. Every time you raise an objection, he'll bounce through 15 or 20 different uses of it and uh, until he finds one that seems to hit on you emotionally or logically, and then he uses that to sell you the policy and pockets that commission. And I can tell based off of the comments, because I've read that that post on your website, the comment section below is a straight fire. <laughs> yeah, I attract uh, that website is is very much a lightning rod for whole life insurance salesmen. And I think a number of them have lost sales after their uh, potential clients have read that website. And so by the time they get there, they're pretty fired up. And uh, you'd be surprised how personal the attacks get. Well, I've given up, me and my wife have given up our cash value plan based off of what we saw on that website. And, you know, after the first year, we put a good amount of money in our, um, in our plans. And when we got the year in statement, there was far less, I'd say at least a third to half less than what we put in, in terms of premiums. And that's when we said, this is ridiculous. And we got rid of it. And I had a policy for seven years and, and my overall return over those seven years was about minus 30%. Oh, and there were a number of reasons for that. It was a tiny policy and it wasn't really designed well, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the fact remains, seven years, and I was still not even close to breaking even. It probably would have been 15 before I broke even. And so I, that's when I dumped it. You know, it's not like I'm, I'm talking about this stuff without ever having owned it. I owned it. It was terrible. Okay, so let's let's get off the backs of financial advisors a little bit. We're going to get back on them in a second, though. Um, but let's. I, there was something that you mentioned before about lifestyle creep, where it seems as though, and at least from my perspective, and definitely from your perspective, that you know, living paycheck to paycheck as a physician um, literally is the norm. Um, so, for example, I want to ask you a question: Like, why do we as physicians? Why do we put those expectations on ourselves uh, and other doctors to kind of? 
you know, have basically misery loves company to join this lifestyle. What I mean by that is me and Renee, it looks like we both graduated at the same time that you graduated. So I'm assuming around 2006, 2005. You graduated from medical school. I came out of med school in 03. So close. 03? Okay. So me and Renee came out of residence or came out of uh, college or medical school in 2006. And we really started getting into our own roughly about two or three years ago. And it's, we're renting right now. And we are living off one salary and we're paying loans off with the other. And we've made very good strides. And it's almost constant every week or, you know, at least two to three times a month, someone is asking us, when are you guys buying a home? When are you guys doing this? When are you guys doing this? This big expenditure, that big expenditure. Why, why do we do that to each other as physicians? Is it a misery loves company type thing or is it just naive, naivete? What is it? Yeah, I think it's just pure ignorance. I mean, there is this idea out there that doctors and lawyers are rich. Um, and the truth of the matter is if making money is really your goal, you should have been on Wall Street. You know, I mean, I've got a college roommate that manages a private equity fund that does far better than I ever will. Um, but, uh, you know, that's part of it is ever society expects us all to be rich because we're doctors. And so we expect each other to live like we're rich because we're doctors. Um, and so I think that's probably all you're seeing there is, is that societal expectation. Whereas if you own a dry cleaning business, you know, that classic example from Stanley and Danko's millionaire next door, nobody expects you to live this fancy lifestyle and drive a Bentley. Um, but if you're a doctor and you're driving a beat up old Durango, you know, maybe people look down their nose at you and assume you're not a successful doctor. Right. Right. Now, when you were creating this website, I know you said that uh, initially that you're a little bit afraid to let people know how many hours you're dedicating to this. Um, but did you have any positive influencers, any mentors who are helping you during this process when you were starting the White Coat Investor? Well, I mean, I think most of it is I didn't want to admit, admit to myself how much time I was putting into it for right. something okay. other people. Um, but I certainly had a few good mentors, um, you know, mostly online. I, before I started it, I had uh, emailed several times with two bloggers that I respected. Mike Piper, who blogs at The Oblivious Investor, and Harry Sitt, that blogs at The Finance Buff. And I talked to him about blogging as a business and, you know, what they were making and what it took to do it and, you know, what kind of time commitment they were putting in. And, uh, you know, and then I really committed to doing it for a couple of years. And I said, well, I'll do it for a couple of years. And if I'm not making $1,000 a month by the end of those two years, I'm going to drop it. And, uh, and I barely made that. By, by two years in, I was making about $1,000 a month. And so I said, well, I'll stick with it then. But one of the best resources for learning how to make money online, make passive income online, is a blogger by the name of Pat Flynn. Oh, yeah. SPI. Yeah. So he runs smartpassiveincome.com. And this is a guy who basically blogs about blogging and literally makes like a hundred or $200,000 a month from it. And so he considers himself the crash test dummy for online, you know, online passive income. And so I learned a lot from his blog and several of his competitors. Um, but I wouldn't say that I had, you know, a definite mentor because there was no one in this niche. There was nobody doing what I was doing. And so a lot of it, I just kind of had to figure out as I went along. And that was part of the fun. How about detractors, particularly within the physician realm? Did anybody look at you and say, ah, what are you doing wasting your time or why are you spending so much time doing this? Well, I mean, I think I probably kept it on the down low for my group for about a year. <laughs> but uh, other than that, no, I never had any detractors or never tried to hide it. Uh, when doctors saw what I was doing, they're like, oh, this is perfect. This is something I never got. We really need this. 
thank you, thank you, thank you for doing this. That's all I ever get from doctors. I get very little criticism from doctors. And when it is, it's some minor point. They you know, think you ought to invest this way instead of that way. But they're very minor issues uh, compared to the general philosophy that I, that I push on the site. You ever get uh, doctors trying to hire you to personally work with them in their finances? Oh, yes. I could have hundreds of clients if I wanted to be a financial advisor. I have people asking me that all the time. Um, But part of it is if I did that, I would not be able to do what I'm doing now. Um, There are lots of regulations on financial advisors as far as their compliance goes, what you can say and do online. And uh, if I was a licensed financial advisor, I wouldn't be able to do a lot of what I'm doing now. And so I'd have to choose between helping, you know, 50 or 100 people a lot or helping thousands of people a little bit each. And I think I've taken the second option there. So what are your thoughts on financial advisors? You know, it's funny because everyone reads what I write and assumes I hate financial advice. <laughs> and it's totally not true. Uh, I think probably, uh, you know, 95% of financial advisors are either charged too much or incompetent. But the truth is that probably 80% of doctors need and want a competent, low-cost advisor. And so I try to connect doctors with competent, low-cost advisors. I see that as one of the you know, most important roles on my site. There's certainly plenty of do-it-yourselfers. And if you read the comments under the blog post, that's who you'd assume all the people reading the site are. But the truth of the matter is most of the people that come to the site are casual visitors, and most of them need and want a good advisor. But it's so hard to find one and hire one um, that it's really a, a difficult thing to do. Because the problem is by the time you know how to recognize good advice, you almost know enough to do it yourself. So would you, would you call, because I, I tend to call fee-only advisors unicorns. Are, are they truly unicorns? Are these the type of, um, is this the fee structure that physicians should be looking to align themselves with? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I, there's no sense in going to a commission salesman and looking for unbiased advice. You're just not going to get it. And so if you're going to hire an advisor, hire a fee-only advisor. But even with that, there's several different ways to pay a fee-only advisor. You might pay them based on an hourly rate. You might pay them based on an annual fee. You might pay them a fee based on your assets under management. The last one is probably the most common one. And the problem with that model is when you're first starting out and need most of the advice, you don't have much in the way of assets under management. And so they're really not getting paid a fair fee for their time. And then later on, after you've made gobs of money, you know, say you have $2 million, you're still paying on 1% of your assets under management. Well, that's $20,000 a year. That's probably way too much to be paying a financial advisor to manage your assets. And so it's kind of an issue, too, because their incentive is to not advise you to do things that takes money out of your assets under management. For instance, paying off your mortgage or your student loans, their incentive is to advise you against that. I'm not saying they will. A lot of them try to be ethical, but they've got this conflict of interest where they lose money by giving you that advice. And so it makes it much harder for them to to do the right thing in those situations. How does one determine how much they should be paying on a yearly basis or on an hourly basis to a fee only advisor? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, Basically the way to do it is you find the cheapest people in the market. And then that seems to be the going rate. Um, And the problem is most people just assume they're being charged a fair fee, a standard rate, because so much is standard across medicine. You know, Medicare is going to pay the same doc, the same fee, uh, you know, for, for something he does. And, you know, there's not even that much variation among the insurance companies. But among what financial advisors are charging, there's dramatic uh, variation. 
And uh, so basically the going rate, the average, the industry average for a fee-only advisor that you're paying based on assets under management is about 1%. So there's certainly no reason to be really be paying any amount above that unless you have an absolutely tiny portfolio. Um, but as your assets grow, I'd sure like to see you getting down to 0.5% of your assets under management as far as that goes. Um, you can hire a fee-only or an hour hourly financial rate advisor, um, hourly rate financial advisor, for anywhere from about $150 an hour to $500 an hour. Um, and it sounds like a lot of money when you put it into an hourly rate, but the truth is that most asset under management advisors are making a lot more than that because it just doesn't take that many hours a year to manage your assets. Um, I've also seen advisors willing to manage your assets for as little as $1,000 a year as a flat fee. And I think that's a fantastic deal. In fact, I think if you're paying less than 5000 total, I think you've got a really good price. I would guess that most docs are paying more than that, um, you know, if they're mid-career or later. Hmm. Okay, very good. Now, how do, you manage, um, how do you manage money in your household? Do you practice what you preach? Well, I mean, I, I preach to be responsible and spend your money on what's going to make you happiest and make sure you're saving an adequate percentage of it for the future. So I would say, absolutely, I practice what I preach. Um, if we, we track our savings rate, what percentage of our gross income we saved over the last, uh, you know, ever since internship, really. And ever since getting out of residency, that percentage has been anywhere from 20% to 60%. And so, yeah, we save a lot of money and uh, try to invest it wisely and and spend our money as well on things that are going to make us happier. You know, people assume we're living some sort of monk-like existence. And uh, it was really revealing, I think, to a lot of people when I pulled back the hood and said, yeah, I bought this fancy schmancy wake boat, uh, which is, you know, in personal finance, basically the worst thing you can ever buy is a boat or an airplane. Um, but the truth is we could afford it. We paid cash for it and something we thought about for a long time and really thought it would bring us some more happiness. And so we went ahead and bought it. Um, so we try to save and invest and spend in ways that will make our life happier. Uh, on the other hand, if something doesn't really make us happy, we don't spend a lot of money on it. Um, up until last month, we just bought a new car last month. Um, but up until last month, I was driving a car that I paid $4,000 for six years ago. It just didn't matter to me. I didn't care. It wasn't something that was, you know, making a real big difference to us. And so, you know, I was basically commuting in a beater. And, uh, and I was fine with us. So we spend our money on, on what matters to us and try to be frugal in other areas. Let's say, um, you, you know, you have someone who's coming fresh out of medical school or even fresh out of residency. Give us the bare minimum of minimum advice for a new attending coming out, has $250,000, uh, in debt, doesn't know much about finances and knows everything about whatever, uh, specialty they're going into, how do they get started? What are the bare essentials they need to do to get started, to get themselves financially independent in, a, you know, in let's say, 10 years or you know, what have you? What's your advice for that person? Well, becoming financially independent in 10 years is really the fast track. Um, 10 years out of residency, going from a net worth of minus $250,000 to two or three million, you've really got to be saving a lot of money. Um, so I don't know that that's realistic for most docs just because they're not willing to make the sacrifices required to be financially independent in 10 years. But there are a number of things that they ought to be doing just to get themselves on a reasonable path. Step number one is living like a resident. 
you've got to prevent that lifestyle explosion as you become an attending. In fact, I tell people to live like a resident for two to five years out of residency, basically until their student loans are gone. And so what does that mean? Well, that means you come out of residency and instead of spending $250,000, you're still spending $50,000. And uh, even after paying taxes, that frees up you know, $125,000 or $150,000 a year that you can use to build wealth with. Whether that's maxing out your retirement accounts or saving up a down payment for your dream house or paying off your student loans, um, you know, you're basically, you know, building wealth at a rate of $125,000 or $150,000 a year. And you'll catch up in a hurry to your college roommates if you'll do that for two to five years out of residency. I mean, the truth of the matter is, if you're throwing $100,000 a year at your student loans, they just don't last very long. Um, but what most docs do is they take them downstairs and feed them and water them and take them like a pet. And 25 years later, they wake up and they've still got student loans. And that's absolutely ridiculous. There's no reason you should be doing that. All you got to do is live like a resident for a couple of years and they're gone. So that's number one. Number two, you got to insure against financial catastrophes. Um, you know, if you want the things that are really going to, to kill your financial plan that you can't recover from is things like you dying and leaving your spouse with nothing. And, um, and you getting disabled. So buying disability insurance and life insurance uh, early on is really important. Um, the other thing that uh, most docs uh, need to be doing is getting a little bit of a financial education, having a basic idea of how the tax code works, uh, a basic idea of how your retirement accounts work, actually reading the documents your employer gives to you about your retirement account. Um, you know, reading a few investment books early on and then maybe reading one a year to kind of stay up to date on the subject, maybe following a blog, basically just being financially literate is a really important thing to do early on. And then uh, as far as spending goes, I think realizing where the big leaks are. In the personal finance literature, there's this idea of the latte factor, that if you just didn't buy a latte every day, you'd be rich. Uh, but the truth of the matter is you only have a limited amount of willpower. You can only say no to yourself so much. And so the key is to say no to yourself on the big items. You know, what you drive, what you live in, maybe how you vacation, those sorts of things. That's where the big money is. And so if you can just win on the big items as far as your spending goes, you can buy as many lattes as you want. Hmm. Okay. Now, in terms of um, investing, you know, the first thing that or the experience that I think a lot of residents, a lot of new attendings get is, you know, that financial advisor who's sponsoring a lunch and he's pushing whatever products or trying to sign as, up as many people as possible. Do you recommend that residents stay away from that and just, you know, try to educate themselves on their own first and then go and find an advisor or... um What's your advice for those, you know, for residents who have that experience? Well, I don't have any problem with anybody hiring an advisor. Um, but the truth is you've got to keep learning, even if you hire them. What a lot of us do is we hire an advisor and say, hey, I've got a money guy. I don't have to pay any attention to this. And that's absolutely not true. Even if you have a, a good financial advisor, you need to be paying a certain amount of attention to it um, to make sure that, that things still work out well. Um, but what happens to a lot of docs is they start paying attention to it and they realize I'm not getting very good advice. And then they fire the financial advisor and either hire a new one or learn how to do it themselves which is a totally reasonable pathway to take. But you do have to put in a little bit of time and you have to be reasonably disciplined uh, in order to be a do-it-yourself investor. Um, but especially early on, investing just is not that complicated. I mean, if they're not giving you a match in your residency 403B or 401K, 
all you got to do is open, you know, a Roth IRA at Vanguard and put your money in, in a simple uh, mutual fund like a target retirement fund. I mean, it's literally a five minute process to invest. And that's all there is to it. Um, and as your as your financial life grows a little bit more complicated, you know, particularly as an attending, things get a little more complicated. But you've also got several years to learn about this stuff before you hit those steps. And, and why do why do you, it, it's almost as if physicians are scared to kind of you know put their you know to jump into the water like it's shark infested waters you know doing things financially you know related. And like you say, you're, you're, the way how you're describing it is almost as if, look, I mean, you have a match at your job. You should be maximizing that. If you, know, if you don't, then you should go, be going online and going to Vanguard or you know, Fidelity or someone and creating your own type of IRA. But it, it's almost as if physicians are too scared and would rather put their head in the sand or just pay someone else to, to do it for them, which oftentimes, and as we just described, gets them in trouble. Well, part of it is you're scared to make a mistake. And the truth of the matter is you want to make all your mistakes early on with a very small amount of money. And so I think it's wonderful to invest on your own right from the beginning, because then you're managing a three-figure portfolio and a four-figure portfolio and a five-figure portfolio. So 10 years from now, when you're managing a a seven-figure portfolio, it's really all the same stuff. I'm doing all the exact same stuff I was doing when I was investing $10,000. But back then, I got a chance to watch what the market did to my investments. And so I learned how the markets work and got to read about financial history and got to make my mistakes back then. You know, I ended up, you know, with those terrible loaded mutual funds that my advisor put me into. And so I got to make all those mistakes on a very small amount of money because 10 years out when maybe you're managing half a million dollars or a million dollar portfolio, um, all of a sudden it feels like real money and you really don't want to make a mistake. And so if you're trying to become a do-it-yourselfer then, it feels a lot harder than I think it would have if you'd started doing it when you only had $2,000 in that investment. All right, Dr. Dolly, we are almost at the end of the interview. And um, before we end, though, I want to hit you off with some quick, fast questions. All right, five quick, fast questions um, that, you know, just tell me what comes off the top of your mind when I ask you these questions, okay? All right, so what's one thing you want physicians to get from this podcast? Um, number one is to get a burning desire to become financially literate, realizing that it's way easier than learning nephrology. Okay. <laughs> Pretty simple. Okay. Um, what's your retirement plan? That's a great question. I don't really have a retirement plan. Um, part of it is because my plan is really financial independence where I can do whatever I want. And, um, you know, I should be there within a couple of years anyway. Um, but rather than retire, I think my goal is to is to get my position, my life in such a state that I don't want to retire from it. And so that's my goal is to be financially independent. Yes, but mostly so I can do whatever I want. And that will probably include work for a number of years. Now, financial financial independence has been a word that's been kind of thrown out there. A lot of people are using it. What's your definition? What's the white coat investors definition of financially independent? Twenty five times what I'm spending every year. That's, that's my mathematical definition, but it basically means I don't have to work, um, and that I'm working purely because I want to. That's what financial independence is. So, so you have saved up 25 times. What, no, no, I mean, that, that's what you're saying. You should have 25 times saved. Yeah, I mean, that, okay. that comes from the general 4% rule that you can take out 4% of your portfolio every year and have it pretty much last indefinitely. And so that's, that's just the basic, you know, rule of thumb figure that when you have that much money, if you're spending $100,000 a year, then you need $2.5 million saved. 
Um, and that, that's just the general rule for financial independence. Now, the, the white coat investor has exploded uh, and you started in 2011, correct? So in five years, the, the white coat investor has completely taken off. Um, it is doing amazing and impressive things. Where do you see this in the next five years? You know, that's a great question. And uh, it's hard enough for me to catch the vision one year out, much less five years out. Um, but mostly my goal is to make sure that, you know, no medical student ever graduates from medical school again without ever hearing of the white coat investor. And that uh, any doctor who's interested in managing finances himself at least has the resources to do so. Um, but what I'm going to be doing over the next five years is probably going to include a number of things. It's going to include some more books. It's going to include uh, reaching out with some partners to do some more physician uh, financial education, more formal education classes, whether online or in person in the medical schools, um, maybe a podcast, uh, maybe some kind of video cast, lots of, uh, lots of different things on the burner. But, um, you know, I don't expect it's going to be going anywhere anytime soon. Can't wait, man. Can't wait. Who's someone that you admire? Well, there's a lot of people I admire, but probably the one I admire the most is my wife. And, you know, a lot of people wonder, how do you do this? How do you put so much of, how do you spend so much time doing all this stuff and, and cranking out all this material and being so productive? And the truth is I'm married to a superwoman and uh, there's no way I could do any of this without her. This last year, I've actually brought her formally onto the, the white coat investor. And so she's actually working on the business now, whereas before she was just holding down the whole rest of my life, you know, as she's been doing ever since residency, really. Um, but, uh, you know, I have a lot of admiration for her and, and, uh, really enjoy being with her. Love it, man. That's amazing. Okay. So the last, uh, question I'm going to ask you is, uh, something I've been asking all of my guests. Um, it's a, it's a hashtag. It's a hashtag. I'm not just a doc. And what I'm, the theme, what I'm trying to get from that is, look, we're all, we all are physicians, but there are other things that. We, have, we are passionate about that we enjoy doing. Um, so it was something that I did on Twitter where I sent it out to one person and it kind of just started a viral movement, so to speak. Um, so I asked all of my guests, hashtag, I'm not just a doc, I'm a, and I allow them to answer it with any type of adjective that you want. Well, I'd probably answer that. I'm not just a doc, I'm a writer and an entrepreneur. You know, it's interesting. When I was a kid, I had three things I wanted to do with my life. Number one was be a doctor. Number two was be a writer. And number three was operate those really big, heavy machinery construction equipment. And uh, I've done two of the three so far. So now I just got to figure out a way to get in on uh, some of that heavy machinery. Where did that come from, that interest? I don't know. I just, you know, when you're in middle school or high school, you just start thinking about what you want to do with your life. And I kind of want to dig big holes in the ground. Oh, okay. <laughs> Beats me why, and I've never pursued it, but, you know, I, I like uh, I like the idea of playing with some of those big cranes and diggers and stuff. So, who knows? Maybe that's what I'll do in my second career. Oh, well, look, we all can't wait, and I think it's it's been amazing what you've been able to do with the White Coat Investor. And what I do now is, um, do you listen to Lewis Howes? He has a podcast. I have not. I'll have to check it out. Okay. Well, he has a podcast called The School of Greatness. Um, he's, an, he's an athlete who had an injury and was down and out, spent literally a year on his sister's couch. He was going, his goal was to make it to the NFL, had an injury uh, in uh, the semi-professional leagues and basically, you know, eventually got himself off her couch and started a LinkedIn business and um, 
you know, really has taken himself to another level where he's interviewing, you know, very high profile guests on his show, giving very inspirational um, uh, tips on his show. And, and now as a New York Times bestselling author. But the one thing I like about his show is at the end of his show, he acknowledges his guests for various things that um, they have done. And um, I've stolen that basically. And um, I do that for all my guests. And I would just want to take time to just acknowledge you for doing something that um, is literally off the beaten path is something that's very niche. Um, but obviously it's something that is helping physicians uh, on a daily basis. And, you know, as you and I know, and most people know, finances is something that we don't learn in, in college, in medical school, and obviously in residency. And at times we feel as though we're at a big disadvantage. And for you to create such a comprehensive website that literally takes you from point A, you know, what's a stock, what's a bond, how do you pay your financial advisor to, you know, the more complex uh, decisions like cash value, life insurance, and disability insurance, and making it so easy so that the everyday physician can understand it. I think it's very impressive. Um, and I just want to let you know that I appreciate you. A lot of people appreciate and, and acknowledge you for what you do. So thank you very much, Dr. Dolly. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. That's it. It's a wrap. Episode six is over. I hope you found value in this interview. Dr. Dolly did say that he is interested in the future in doing a Q&A session with the questions that are submitted from the guests. So what I am doing is I am allowing you all to send me questions to my Twitter account, which is at DocsOTB. That's at D-O-C-S-O-T-B as in boy. Or you can send your questions to at, excuse me, sorry. You can send your questions to my email, which is DocsOTB at gmail.com. Um, also, don't forget that same service that same um, opportunities available with Katie Brewer from episode four. She's willing to do a Q&A session also. So send your questions to me as soon as possible. And you never know, maybe by the end of the month or maybe by early July, we'll have a couple of Q&A sessions where you all can submit your questions and we can answer them online. And uh, we possibly may be able to make this a recurring series. Also, for those who continue to subscribe, thank you so much. For those who are sharing, thank you. It is so much appreciated. I really do appreciate that. It really does add value to the show. And for those who are submitting reviews on iTunes, it is appreciated. So this next uh, review is put up by Nephi Nephi, and it says, Dr. Darko, thank you so much for making the podcast. As an incoming OB-GYN intern, the dialogue presented in this podcast is right on the money as far as shaping how we as physicians can make great opportunities, especially in our current healthcare climate. I've been looking everywhere for a platform with these types of discussions. So again, thank you. Nephi, Nephi, thank you so much for reaching out and putting that iTunes review up there. It is so appreciated. Remember, you can leave reviews on Stitcher Radio, on iTunes, as well as Google Play Music. And if you feel like you know someone who'd be a great guest on this show, nominate someone. Send them to me at docsotb at gmail.com. Also, don't forget about our hashtag, I'm not just a doc. Continue to send that, to continue to keep that movement going and submit a, um, a completion word to I'm not just a doc, I'm a. All right, let's keep it going. And also, guys, and always, don't forget, until next time, remember to always live outside the box.